Welcome to News Flash. Today is Tuesday, twenty second May, twenty eighteen. A spokesman for Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte yesterday aired very serious concern over reports that China has landed long-range bombers on its islands in the disputed South China Sea. The foreign ministry also said in a statement it is taking appropriate but low-key diplomatic action to protect our claims and will continue to do so in the future. The ministry said. We reiterate our commitment to protect every single inch of our territory and areas which we have sovereign rights over. But it stopped short of condemning China's action to avoid any drawbacks and challenges. It said, while appropriate language, whether expressions of condemnation or concern over certain developments, are clearly conveyed through diplomatic channels. It is not our policy to publicize every action taken by the Philippine government whenever there are reported developments taking place in the South China Sea. Mr. Duterte has made it a cornerstone of his foreign policy to cultivate friendship with China, despite a favorable ruling Manila received over the South China Sea from an arbitration court in the Hague in 2016. China's air force said bombers such as the H-6K. Had landed and taken off from islands and reefs in the South China Sea as part of training exercises last week. The Washington-based Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, using Chinese social media posts, identified the location of the exercise as Woody Island, China's largest base in the Paracels, that are also claimed by Vietnam and Taiwan. With its combat radius of about three thousand five hundred and twenty kilometers. The H-6K would put all of Southeast Asia in its range from Woody Island. Farther south, in the Spratly group of islands, China has constructed man-made islands on seven Philippine-claimed reefs, and equipped them with runways, hangars, radar, and missile stations. The U.S. on Saturday criticized China's continued militarization of its island outposts and warned that this could destabilize the region. The U.S. does not have any territorial claims in the South China Sea, but insists on freedom of navigation and a peaceful resolution of disputes without coercion or threats of force. China claims almost the entire South China Sea, a strategic waterway through which about three trillion U.S. dollars worth of seaborne trade passes every year. Brunei, Malaysia, the Philippines, Taiwan, and Vietnam have conflicting claims in the area. Mr. Harry Roque, Mr. Duterte's spokesman, told reporters the Philippines would raise recent developments in the South China Sea during bilateral talks with China in August. He said, "We don't have to make noise over each and every issue," echoing the foreign ministry's preference for a low-key approach. He said this was not indifferent to China. He also pointed out that a recent meeting between senior Philippine officials. And the commander of U.S. forces in the Pacific showed Manila was not abandoning its ties with Washington. He added, "I can only surmise that the visit is intended to reassure the U.S. that while we are pursuing an independent foreign policy, we have not abandoned our traditional ally." The foreign ministry disclosed on Sunday that Defense Secretary Delfin Lorenzana, Foreign Affairs Secretary Alan Cayetano, and Executive Secretary Salvador Medialdia. On Friday, met Admiral Harry Harris, chief of the U.S. Pacific Command in Honolulu. The ministry said, without providing details, the Philippine delegation had a very substantive exchange with Admiral Harris on regional challenges, and both sides agreed that the alliance remains consequential to the preservation of regional stability and development. Mr. Duterte on Saturday again defended his position that confronting China would only lead to a war the Philippines could not win.
He said, "I can send my Marines there. I can send every policeman there. But what? But what will happen? They will all be massacred." Lawmakers have criticized him for not confronting China in preference for his attempts to win China's friendship. In Beijing, Foreign Ministry spokesman Liu Kang told a daily news briefing yesterday, "Other countries should not read too much into what he called a routine military patrol." China yesterday praised a significant dialing back of trade tension with the U.S., with the government saying agreement was in the interests of both countries, while state media trumpeted what it saw as China's refusal to surrender. The cooling of tension elicited mixed reactions from U.S. business leaders dealing with China, with some happy to see the prospect of damaging tariffs fade, while others said it would be difficult for Washington to rebuild momentum to address what they see as troubling Chinese policies. A trade war was on hold after the world's largest economies agreed to drop the tariff threats. While they work on a wider trade agreement, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said on Sunday. The previous day, Beijing and Washington said they would keep talking about measures under which China would import more energy and agricultural commodities from the U.S. to narrow the 335 billion U.S. dollars annual U.S. goods and services trade deficit with China. Speaking at a daily briefing, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Liu Kang said both countries had clearly recognized that the reaching of a consensus was good for all. Mr. Liu said, "China has never hoped for any tensions between China and the U.S. in the trade or other arenas." But Chinese media was also quick to point out how the country had successfully defended its interests. Mr. Mei Xinyu, a Commerce Ministry researcher. Wrote on the WeChat account of the overseas edition of the ruling Communist Party's official People's Daily that the agreement preserved China's right to develop its economy as it sees fit, including moving up the value chain. The deal also focused on China's positive position to increase imports rather than a negative position of getting it to cut exports, Mr. May said. The official China Daily said everyone could heave a sigh of relief at the ratcheting down of the rhetoric. And cited China's chief negotiator, Vice Premier Liu He, as saying the talks had proved to be positive, pragmatic, constructive, and productive. Despite all the pressure, China didn't fold, as U.S. President Donald Trump observed. Instead, it stood firm and continually expressed its willingness to talk. The English language newspaper said in an editorial. It added. That the U.S. finally shared this willingness means the two sides have successfully averted the head-on confrontation that, at one point, seemed inevitable. During an initial round of talks this month in Beijing, the U.S. demanded that China reduce its trade surplus by two hundred billion U.S. dollars. No dollar figure was cited in the country's joint statement on Saturday. Some in U.S. business groups who had been pushing for tougher measures to pressure China to ease long-standing market barriers on U.S. companies expressed disappointment. Mr. James Zimmerman, a Beijing-based lawyer and a former chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in China, said the Trump administration's move to walk back its threatened trade actions was premature and a lost opportunity for American companies, workers, and consumers. Mr. Zimmerman said. The Chinese are in a state of quiet glee, knowing that Trump's trade team backed off on sanctions without getting any real and meaningful concessions out of Beijing. But Mr. Jacob Parker, vice president of China operations at the U.S.-China Business Council, called the apparent de-escalation in trade tension a great bit of progress. He told Reuters, 
We were never supportive of tariffs, so any actions that can be taken to stop those from being implemented are positive from our view. Goldman Sachs noted the lack of specifics in statements by US and Chinese officials, which it viewed mainly as evidence that both sides wanted to continue talking. Goldman Sachs wrote in a research note, We do not rule out the possibility that the Chinese team offered some tangible concessions which helped the progress of the talks, but as other aspects of an agreement are still in flux, has avoided stating these offers in public. Some analysts in Beijing warned that trade tension would persist and that China should prepare for more action on trade from the Trump administration. Dr. Xu Yinhong, an expert on China-U.S. relations at Renmin University, said at a forum on Sunday, We should not be blindly optimistic. Blind optimism could lead to China losing at this crossroads. Dr. Xu, who has advised the government on diplomatic issues, said China could accept a lower trade surplus and reduce its market entry barriers, but would not compromise on its industrial policy. The ruling Communist Party's People's Daily said that in the energy and agriculture sectors, the two countries had obvious synergies, with the US having the capacity to satisfy the massive Chinese market. It said, The ballast stone of Sino-US ties are an equal and mutually beneficial trade and business relationship. Its essence is win-win cooperation. But China was not being forced to increase imports as a way to ward off the trade tensions or because the country had submitted to outside pressure, the newspaper said in a commentary. China will naturally need to import more to satisfy demand from its increasingly affluent consumers, the newspaper wrote. Trade wars have no winners, it's added in the commentary, published under the pen name Zhongsheng, meaning Voice of China, used to give the paper's view on foreign policy issues. South Korean banks and financial institutions are redoubling efforts to tap into possible business opportunities in North Korea in the wake of a recent thaw in inter-Korean relations, sources told Yonhap News Agency. A U.S.-North Korea summit, slated for Singapore on June 12, has also raised hopes that Washington may ease sanctions on Pyongyang, which may open the way for South Korean banks to enter the Communist North, reported Yonhap. Sources told Yonhap that one of the banks, KEB Hana Bank, is seeking to establish a task force as early as this month, which will be tasked with preparing for potential inter-Korean financial business. The task force will study North Korea's politics, economy and society while reviewing possible business opportunities for the lender and its parent holding company. Shin Han Financial Group Company, one of South Korea's major financial holding firms, is also seeking to set up a consultative body comprising of officials from its subsidiaries in a bid to deal systematically with possible changes in inter-Korean ties and economic cooperation between the Koreas. Leaders of the two Koreas have pledged in a joint declaration adopted at the historic summit in late April to work towards a complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. The two Koreas have also agreed to fully implement all existing agreements and declarations that have been adopted thus far. That includes economic projects agreed upon in 2007, including an expansion of a joint industrial complex in the North Korean city of Kaesong and the launch of cross-border cargo railway service. An inter-Korea joint liaison office will also be established in the border region of Kaesong to ensure the smooth exchange and cooperation between both sides. Although there is no word on the possible reopening of a joint industrial park in Kaesong, which was shuttered by the South Korean government in 2016 in protest of North Korea's nuclear and missile tests, the South Korean businessmen with properties there are hopeful it would reopen soon.
more than 120 South Korean businessmen to leave behind their properties, had to leave behind their properties, including key facilities and raw materials. Companies as the complex said the closure resulted in 1.5 trillion won in losses, but the South Korean government estimated their losses to be 786 billion won. The industrial park, which opened in 2004, had been hailed as a key symbol of economic cooperation between the two Koreas as it combined South Korean capital and technology with cheap labor from North Korea. South Korea's major lender, Wuri Bank, had to close its branch in Kaesong when Seoul suspended operations at the factory park. Yonhap reported that a newly appointed task force at Wuri Bank is reportedly discussing ways to reopen its branch in the now-shuttered inter-Korean industrial complex. The special team, comprising officials from eight departments and the Wuri Finance Research Institute, was launched early this month and will be in operation till the end of July. KB Financial Group is known to be considering whether to form a task force on possible business in North Korea, reported Yonhub. The Exports-Imports Bank of Korea and other state lenders are focusing their efforts on boosting research on North Korea by expanding think tanks and forming a new research body, according to the sources. Taiwan launched a global appeal yesterday to be granted access to the World Health Organization's main annual meeting, after tensions with China led to its exclusion for a second straight year. China sees self-governing democratic Taiwan as part of its territory awaiting reunification and has used its clout to diminish the island's presence on the world stage since Beijing skeptic President Tsai Ing-wen took power in May 2016. Last year was the first time in eight years that Taiwan was not granted access to the World Health Assembly, or WHA, which opened its 71st edition in Geneva yesterday. Taiwan's health and welfare minister, Chen Shichong, told reporters, We are here to plead for the support of all nations and anyone who cares about improving global health to rally for Taiwan's formal participation in the World Health Assembly. Speaking at a Geneva hotel less than a kilometre away from the UN's European headquarters, as the WHA was set to open, Chen said that keeping Taiwan out violates the fundamental principles of the WHO. WHO has said it was not in a position to invite Taiwan until a cross-straits understanding with Beijing was restored. Chen declined to answer directly when asked if he wanted WHO to circumvent Beijing and give Taiwan a special invitation. But he insisted that excluding Taiwan was not just a blow to 23 million Taiwanese, but could also hurt tens, perhaps hundreds of millions of global citizens, given the island's significant technical and financial contribution to global health. Chen said, people who don't care about politics or diplomatic squabble do not deserve to be pawns in a game with such serious stakes. China's foreign ministry has said that the island was only able to attend the WHA from 2009 to 2016 because the previous Taiwan government had a consensus with Beijing that there is only one China. While the island's former administration touted the agreement as enabling cross-straits relations to flourish without compromising Taiwan's sovereignty, Beijing saw it as meaning Taiwan and the mainland are part of a single China. President Tsai and the independence-leaning Democratic Pro Progressive Party have refused to acknowledge the principle, which Beijing sees as the bedrock for relations. China launched yesterday a relay satellite that will allow a rover to communicate with the Earth from the far side of the moon during an, un during an unprecedented mission later this year. The Tre Xiao, 
or Magpie Bridge satellite was blasted into space from the southwestern Zichang Launch Center in the pre-dawn hours, according to the China National Space Administration. The satellite split from its carrier, a Long March 4C rocket, after 25 minutes and unfolded its solar panels and communication antennas as it headed towards its destination, the CNSA said. Mr. Zhang Lihua, manager of the Relay Satellite Project, was quoted as saying by the official Xinhua News Agency. The launch is a key step for China to realize its goal of being the first country to send a probe to Softland and soft land on and rove the far side of the moon. The satellite will relay communications between controllers on Earth and the far side of the moon, where the Chang'e 4 lunar probe, named after the moon goddess in Chinese mythology, mythology will be sent later this year. Also known as the dark side of the moon, the far hemisphere is never directly visible from Earth, and while it has been photographed with the first images appearing in 1959, it has never been explored. The Chang'e 4 rover will be sent to the Aitken Basin in the lunar South Pole region, according to Xinhua. It will be the second Chinese probe to land on the moon, following the U-2 or Jade Rabbit rover mission in 2013. At first, the U-2 looked destined to fail when the rover stopped sending signals back to Earth. But then it made a dramatic recovery, ultimately surveying the moon's surface for 31 months, well beyond its expected lifespan. The CNSA is planning to send another lunar rover, Chang'e 5, next year to collect samples and bring them back to Earth. China is pouring billions into its military-run space program with hopes of having a crewed space station by 2022 and of sending humans to the, to the moon in the near future. Thailand's Education Ministry has diffused a dress code rule at a school in Patani province by giving the green light for Muslim students there to wear the hijab and long trousers in line with the religious rules. Starting yesterday, Muslim students at the Anuban Patani school could wear hijab and long trousers. Deputy Education Minister Lieutenant General Surachet Chai Wong said on Sunday, It's just that they also must respect school rules by wearing only the colours allowed by the school. For example, hijab should be in the white colour or the colour of the uniform skirt. During the past week, tension was rising at the Anuban Patani school over what Muslim students should wear. About 20 teachers went on leave amid the standoff. Although the school is located in the predominantly Muslim province, its students had never worn Islamic dress to class until last week. Some students, backed by their parents and the Muslim for Peace Foundation, reported to the new semester wearing hijab and long trousers. The school initially expressed acceptance but later backtracked. On May 16, the school's director, Prajak Chusri, said the school would have no objection if students came to class in Muslim-style clothes. But two days later, the school's committee convened a meeting and shot down the suggestion that Muslim students should be able to dress in accordance with religious rules. Parents and human rights activists, however, have refused to give up. They have vowed to take the case further to defend students' rights. Before the row could escalate further, the Secretary-General of the Office of Basic Education Commission, Munrups Yodpet, met with the executives of Patani's Primary Educational Service Area 1 office on Sunday and concluded that students at the Anuban Patani School will be able to dress in accordance with the religious beliefs. Normally, the school's dress code does not include a hijab and long trousers. A source said the exclusion was very likely because the school was built on a plot of land belonging to a temple and thus had to comply with the temple's rules. A parent said if her daughters were not allowed to wear the hijab, she would fight further.
The mother said, This is because I know wearing a hijab does not violate the education ministry's regulations or laws. Another parent said the Anuban Patani school was very good, except for the dress code. She said, My first child studied here and he could not wear Muslim clothes to school. Now my youngest child is in its Pratom 4 class. I hope there will be some changes so that he can dress based on his religious beliefs. I have never had the courage to speak up until now, or until I met some parents who are willing to stand up and defend the rights of their children. In Malaysia, the corruption trial of Mr Lim Guan Eng, the designated finance minister of Malaysia's new Pakatan Harapan government, has been postponed to July 30th, while his lawyers are asking for the charges to be dropped. High Court Judge Hadharia Syed Ismail fixed the date when the case came up for case management yesterday. Mr Ram Karpau Singh, the lawyer for the former Penang Chief Minister, said they would be filing a representation on the case to the new Attorney General, who is expected to be appointed by then. Mr Ram Karpau told reporters outside the courtroom they would propose to the new AG that the charges against Lim should be dropped. In response, Deputy Public Prosecutor Masri Muhammad Dawood said the defence team was free to file the representation. Neither Mr Lim nor his head lead counsel, Gobin Singh Dio, were present in court, as both are being sworn in as cabinet ministers. Mr Gobin is being sworn in as the communications and multimedia minister, while Mr Lim is being sworn in as the finance minister. Mr Lim pleaded guilty, pleaded not guilty on June 30, 2016, to two counts of corruption over the conversion of agricultural land to residential status and the purchase of a plot and bungalow at below market value. He was charged with using his position as chief minister to gain gratification for himself and wife Betty Chu Gek Ching by approving the application for conversion of agricultural land to a public housing zone in Balik Pulau to accompany magnificent emblem Sedan Bahad. Mr Lim faces a second charge of using his position to obtain a plot of land and bungalow at number 25, Jalan Pinhorn, on July 28, 2015, from businesswoman Tang Li Kun for 2.8 million ringgit at below market value. Mr Lim and businesswoman Tang Li Kun pleaded not guilty to the charges against them on March 26. Ms Fang's lawyer, Datuk V. Sitambaram, said he would also be making a similar representation to the new AG on the charges against his client. Meanwhile, Datut Sari Khairuddin Abu Hassan has lodged a report with the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, against Datut Sari Najib Tun Razak with regards to the One Malaysia Development Berhad, or 1MDB scandal. The former Batukawan Amno Division chief said he made the report with the FBI against Najib and his accomplices on May 12 in New York. He said in a statement yesterday, At the FBI office in New York, I also wrote a letter to the US president to inform him of Najib's wrongdoings as he misappropriated government finances and the monies of the people of Malaysia. Datuk Sari Khairuddin previously was unable to file the report with the FBI in 2015 as he was arrested under the Security Offences Special Measures Act, or SOSMA, before he was scheduled to leave the country. He was then jailed for two months under the Act, but the High Court ruled that Khairuddin and his lawyer, Mr Matthias Cheng, could not be tried under SOSMA for allegedly attempting to sabotage banking and, fi and financial services. Mr Khairuddin also stated that he had made a new police report in Sydney, Australia, on February 2016 against Australia and New Zealand Banking Group Limited 
or ANZ for not informing Malaysian law enforcement authorities and for allowing the 2.6 billion ringgit in Mr Najib's personal bank account to be transferred to Singapore. He added that he also made a report with the Attorney General's chambers in Switzerland on April 7. Mr Khairuddin said he was relieved that the Royal Malaysia Police and the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, or MACC, are finally taking action over the reports he had made in 2014. He said, Under the new Pakatan Harapan government, led by Tun Dr Mahathir Mohamad, enforcement agencies in Malaysia no longer have to close the case investigating this financial scandal. Australia's banks were revealed yesterday to have engaged in a wide range of misconduct with a powerful inquiry into the country's financial sector, hearing of admissions of fraudulent loans and double-charging interest. All of Australia's big four lenders acknowledged some transgressions in their submissions, said Michael Hodge, senior counsel assisting the inquiry, on the opening day of the third round of public hearings, which will focus on banks' treatment of small and medium-sized businesses. The admissions of bad behaviour came as Kenneth Hain, the former judge presiding over the Royal Commission, said he had been swamped with more than 5,500 submissions detailing misconduct, 11% of which were related to small and medium-sized businesses. The admissions are a further hit to the sector's reputation after previous rounds of hearings uncovered widespread abuses in Australia's financial advice industry, leading to executive departures at wealth manager AMP Limited. Australia and New Zealand Banking Group told the investigation it was aware that 47 fraudulent business loans had been extended last year. Hodge said, ANZ acknowledged that in 2017, two ANZ business banking managers were found to have been colluding with external third parties to make 47 fraudulent loans. One was dismissed, the other resigned during the disciplinary process. Commonwealth Bank of Australia admitted to systematically double-charging interest to some business customers over many years, he said, adding the country's largest lender had failed to tell the regulator about the problem in a timely manner, which is required by law. National Australia Bank had also admitted to overcharging customers due to incorrect calculations of interest rates and double-charging fees, while number 2 lender Westpac Banking Corporation had admitted to offering loans to businesses that should not have been targeted, Hodge said. Westpac is still investigating the scope of the problem, he added. Media representatives, representatives for the banks told Reuters that it would not be appropriate to comment out of respect for the proceedings. The country's four largest banks dominate the mortgage and business lending market, while also holding the lion's share of deposits and consumer credit loans. Less than halfway into a year-long investigation, the Commission has already prompted the banks to impose stricter lending conditions on borrowers, triggering fears the economy will be the victim of a new era of subdued credit growth as a result. Shares in the big four banks were mostly lower on Monday, with CBA, Westpac and NAB losing less than 1%, while ANZ was largely flat. Alastair Welsh, head of commercial lending at Westpac, is scheduled to be the first bank executive to appear before the inquiry this week. Cambodian police have arrested a 70-year-old barber for allegedly insulting the king, the second such case since the controversial Lis Majest law was introduced this year. The detentions have stoked fear that the law may be abused to silence political critics, as it is in neighbouring Thailand. CM Reap Provincial Prov Provincial Police said Ban Somfi was arrested on Sunday after a week-long hunt. A CM Reap Police officer who I identified himself as Mr. Tai 
told reporters. The police started searching for Ban Somvi on May 13, after the Siam Reap Provincial Security Team found out that Somvi shared text and a photograph on Facebook which insulted the king. The police managed to identify him on May 19. While investigations continue, Ban Somvi will be detained in prison in the northwestern Siam Reap province, according to Mr. Yin Sran, the director of Siam Reap Provincial Court's Administration Secretariat. If convicted, he could be jailed for up to five years and fined up to 10 million real. Thailand punishes those who defame or insult the king, queen, heir apparent, and regent with sentences of up to 15 years jail for each conviction. Given that repeating an insult can also be interpreted as a crime, public information about such cases is often vaguely worded. Last year, a Thai military court sentenced a man to 35 years in prison on 10 separate violations. While Cambodia's law applies specifically to comments made about the king, political analyst Mia's knee worries that legal prosecutions could spike given that there is still little awareness about this law. He said, Because the law does not mention clearly what sort of defamation would violate the king's reputation, it is very dangerous for somebody to say something about the king. The weekend arrest in Cambodia came about a week after police arrested a 50-year-old primary school principal for another alleged royal insult, also made via social media. Kiang Navi was detained in the central Kampong Tom province for comments made on Facebook about the alleged role of King Norodom Sihamoni in the dissolution of the opposition Cambodia National Rescue Party, or CNRP. The CNRP, the biggest challenger to the ruling Cambodian People's Party in recent years, was dissolved by a court in November last year over allegations that it was fomenting a revolution. Its leader, Kem Sokha, has been detained since he was arrested last September for alleged treason. Many of its former lawmakers have fled the country, while its parliamentary seats have been redistributed. With the CNRP out of the picture, Prime Minister Hun Sen is poised to extend his three-decade-long reign as Premier after the general election on July 29. While King Siamoni has played a largely ceremonial role in this reign, he is required to sign off on laws. In October last year, he officially acceded to amendments to Cambodia's electoral laws that allowed the CNRP seats to be redistributed, triggering criticism about his role in the suppression of democracy. In a speech to the New Senate in April, King Sihamoni said that it must ensure it protects justice and respects human rights in order to create long-term harmony in our society, according to a report in the Phnom Penh Post. A virus mainly carried by fruit bats, which has spread across Asian nations, has killed at least three people in southern India and caused panic in one district, officials said yesterday. Eight other deaths in the state of Kerala are being investigated for possible links to the Nipah virus, which has a 70% mortality rate. Kerala Health Secretary Rajiv Sadanandan told AFP. The government received four samples, out of which three deaths were because of Nipah. The victims died in Calicut district. Sadanandan said the cause of other suspicious deaths could only be confirmed through tests. We have sent blood and body fluid samples of all suspected cases for confirmation. It will take 24 to 48 hours for the results to come. India's health minister rushed medical experts to the state after a local politician reported that residents were panicking in Calicut's district. The team would initiate required steps as warranted by the protocol for the disease, J.P. Nada said on Twitter. 
In Kerala, neighbours who told local media that family members who died had eaten fruit picked from a compound where they were building a home. Nipah induces flu-like symptoms that often lead to encephalitis and coma. Fruits bats are considered the main carrier of the virus, for which there is no vaccination, according to the World Health Organization. Nipah was first identified in Malaysia in 1998. It spread to Singapore, and more than 100 people were killed in both places. On that occasion, pigs were the virus hosts, but they are believed to have caught it from bats. In India, the disease was first reported in 2001, and again six years later, with the two outbreaks claiming 50 lives. Both times, the disease was reported in areas of the eastern state of West Bengal, bordering Bangladesh. Bangladesh has borne the brunt of the disease, with more than 100 people dying of Nipah since the first outbreak was reported there in 2001. In Bangladesh, in 2004, humans became infected with Nipah as a result of consuming date palm sap that had been contaminated by infected fruit bats. A special counsel plans to finish by September 1st the investigation into whether U.S. President Donald Trump obstructed the Russia inquiry, according to the president's lawyer Rudy Giuliani, who said on Sunday that waiting any longer would risk improperly influencing voters in the midterm elections in November. The office of the special counsel Robert Mueller shared its timeline about two weeks ago amid negotiations over whether Trump will be questioned by investigators. Giuliani said. Adding that Mueller's office said the date was contingent on Trump's agreeing to be interviewed, a spokesman for the special counsel's office declined to comment. Giuliani's comments were an apparent attempt to publicly pressure Mueller amid the interview negotiations. He urged that the investigation be wrapped up as soon as possible, pointing as a cautionary tale to the revelation by former FBI Director James Comey in the last days of the 2016 presidential race. That he, that he was reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, Comey's announcement is widely blamed by Democrats for costing her the election. The FBI found no wrongdoing. Giuliani said, "You don't want another another repeat of the 2016 election, where you get contrary reports at the end, and you don't know how it affected the election." Handing in a report to the Justice Department on his findings in the obstruction case. Would not signal the end of Mueller's work. The obstruction examination is one piece of Mueller's broader inquiry, a counterintelligence investigation into Russia's campaign to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. Counterintelligence investigations are used to gather information quietly about the activities of foreign powers and their agents, sometimes for years, and can result in criminal charges. Giuliani sought to frame the outcome of the obstruction investigation. As pitting the credibility of one man against another, Trump versus Comey, the president asked Comey in the early days of the administration to end the investigation into his first national security adviser, Michael Flynn, according to contemporaneous memos and congressional testimony by Comey. The president's request is one of the main episodes Mueller is examining to determine whether Trump had criminal intent to obstruct the Russia investigation. Saudi air defenses intercepted and destroyed a ballistic missile fired by Yemen's Houthi movement over the southern city of Jazan. The Saudi-led coalition said yesterday. Earlier, the Houthi said the group had fired a Badr One ballistic missile at Jazan's airport without giving any further details. The Houthis, an Iran-allied group that holds much of Yemen, including the capital Sanaa, have fired a series of missiles into the kingdom in recent months.
Part of a three-year-old conflict in Yemen, widely seen as a proxy battle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. A U.S.-backed military alliance intervened in Yemen's civil war in 2015 to fight against the Houthis on behalf of the government of President Abdul Rabu Mansour al-Hadi, who lives in exile in Riyadh. Iran and the Houthis dismissed Saudi accusations that Tehran arms the group. Coalition spokesman Turkey al-Mawki said Saudi air defenses, air defense forces destroyed the missile over Jazan and accused the Houthis of targeting residential areas according to a report from the official Saudi press agency. The Houthis have fired a salvo of missiles at Saudi Arabia in recent months, including the capital, Riyadh, while the coalition launched thousands of airstrikes against Houthi-held areas, killing hundreds of civilians at hospitals, schools and markets. Paraguay opened its Israel embassy in Jerusalem on Monday, the second country to follow the US in making the politically sensitive move from Tel Aviv. Paraguayan President Horacio Cartes and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu attended the inauguration ceremony. The U.S. relocated its embassy to Jerusalem a week ago, drawing Palestinian anger. It was followed by Guatemala on Wednesday. The status of Jerusalem is one of the thorniest obstacles to forging a peace deal between Israel and the Palestinians, who, with broad international backing, wants East Jerusalem, captured by Israel in the 1967 Middle East War, as their capital. Israel regards all of the city, including the eastern sector it annexed after the 1967 conflict, as its capital. Cartes said at the ceremony, This is a historic day that strengthens ties between Paraguay and Israel. A great day for Israel, a great day for Paraguay, a great day for our friendship, Netanyahu responded. You have not only the support of our government, but the profound gratitude of the people of Israel. He added, Hanan Ashwari, an official of the Palestine Liberation Organization denounced Paraguay's move. He said in a statement, By adopting such a provocative and irresponsible measure that is in direct contravention of international law and consensus, Paraguay has conspired with Israel, the US and Guatemala to entrench the military occupation and to seal the fate of occupied Jerusalem. In December, U.S. President Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, reversing decades of U.S. policy and upsetting the Arab world and Western allies. Most world powers do not recognize Israeli sovereignty over the entire city and says its final status should be set in peace negotiations. Starbucks is now allowing people to use its restrooms and sit in its cafes and patios, even if they do not buy anything. The announcement comes about five weeks after a manager at a Philadelphia Starbucks called the police on two young black men who had arrived at the coffee shop early for a business meeting. One or both of the men had asked to use the bathroom but were told they couldn't, they couldn't use it because they had not bought anything. On Saturday, the coffee giant announced that any customer is welcome to use Starbucks spaces, including our restrooms, cafes and patios, regardless of whether they make a purchase, it said. It added that employees should follow established procedures for addressing disruptive behaviours and called 911 in the case of immediate danger or threat to employees or customers. Previously, it might have fallen to store managers to decide whether people could sit or use the restroom without buying anything, the Associated Press reported. Haley Drage, a Starbucks spokeswoman, said on Sunday, This is now an established policy for consistency across all of our US company-operated stores. Starbucks executive chairman Howard Scholtz told Gail King of CBS this morning 
that's the manager at the Philadelphia Starbucks, who is no longer with the company, probably acted on her own unconscious bias, and the incident raises questions about whether the men were racially profiled. The two men, Rachel Nelson and Dante Robinson, reached a settlement with Philadelphia city officials. This month, they agreed to a symbolic payment of one U.S. dollars each, and asked the city to fund two hundred thousand U.S. dollars for a grant program for high school students aspiring to become entrepreneurs. The incident placed Starbucks in a harsh public spotlight, resulted in days of protests and prompted rebukes from local leaders. On May twenty-nine, the coffee giant plans to close more than eight thousand of its U.S. retail stores to train its nearly one hundred and seventy-five thousand employees. On racial bias education, Starbucks chief executive Kevin Johnson said in a statement, "I've spent the last few days in Philadelphia with my leadership team, listening to the community, learning what we did wrong and the steps we need to take to fix it. While this is not limited to Starbucks, we're committed to being part of the solution." Starbucks said the curriculum will focus on how employees can recognize and address their own biases to prevent future discrimination. The company said in a statement, referring Starbucks' claim to fame as a third place between work and home where people can spend their time. We are committed to creating a culture of warmth and belonging where everyone is welcome. We want our stores to be the third place, a warm and welcoming environment where customers can gathering and can gather and connect. Russia's first floating nuclear power plant arrived in the Arctic port of Murmansk. Over the weekend, in preparation for its maiden mission, providing electricity to an isolated Russian town across the Bering Strait from Alas from Alaska, the state company behind the plant, called the Academic Lomonosov, said says it could pioneer a new power source for remote regions of the planet. But green campaigners have expressed concern about the risk of nuclear accidents. Greenpeace has called it the nuclear Titanic. Russian state nuclear company Rosatom, which developed the floating power plant, said that it docked the unit in Murmansk on Saturday, where it was towed from Saint Petersburg, the city where it was built. In Murmansk, it will take on board a supply of nuclear fuel. It will then be towed to the town of Pevek in the far eastern region of Chukotka, separated from the U.S. state of Alaska by the 86 kilometers wide Bering Strait. It will start operations there next year. The plants will replace a coal-fired power plant and an aging nuclear power plant, supplying more than five fifty thousand people with electricity in Chukotka. Rosatom said, "Rosatom has long planned to launch the seaborne power units, which, with their mobile small capacity plants, are best suited to remote regions. It says they can help the environment by reducing greenhouse gas emissions blamed for global warming." The small plants were designed to make it possible to supply electricity to hard-to-reach areas of Russia. They can operate non-stop without the need for refueling for three to five years. Environmental protection groups, including Greenpeace, have sent a letter to Rosatom boss Alexei Likachev, demanding strict adherence to safety standards and saying they were watching the floating facility's development with great concern. The letter calls for full and unrestricted regulatory oversight by the Russian nuclear regulator, and an international study into the environmental impact before the reactors are loaded with fuel and tested. Jen Haverkamp, nuclear expert for Greenpeace Central and Eastern Europe, said in a statement last month, "Nuclear reactors bobbing around the Arctic Ocean will pose a shockingly obvious threat to a fragile environment, which is already under enormous pressure from climate change."
Tyler Dooley, nephew of Britain's newest royal Meghan Markle, took a knife to a London nightclub and then blamed Donald Trump's warnings about the dangers of the British capital, The Sun reported yesterday. Daily, the Daily said Dooley, 25, a cannabis farmer who was not invited to the royal wedding in Windsor, handed a four-inch blade to a bouncer outside the club in Kingston, southwest London. London's Metropolitan Police did not name Dooley, but confirmed they were called by security to the club after a man openly declared he had a knife as he attempted to enter the club. The incident happened just hours after Saturday's wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan. When officers arrived at 1.55 a.m., inquiries led them to a hotel in Kingston, and two men in their 20s were spoken to by officers in connection with the incident. One of the men also voluntarily surrendered a a noxious spray. Both men, who were visitors to the UK, were warned about the actions, the statement said. Neither was arrested, no further action was taken, and inquiries are complete, it added. It is illegal to carry any knife in a public place in England, except for folding pocket knives with blades measuring three inches or less. Police commander Sally Benatar was quoted in the statement as saying, The items were handed over voluntarily and there was no ongoing risk to the investigate. There was no ongoing risk, so the investigation was closed with warnings given. The son quoted Dooley as telling someone outside the club, I just brought it because Donald Trump said London was like a war zone. I had it for protection. When contacted by a Sun reporter, the paper said Dooley hid inside a bin cupboard at his hotel. Dooley flew into London last week with his brother and mother, the ex-wife of Marco's half-brother Thomas, who was also not invited to the Nook shows. The the run-up to the royal wedding was overshadowed by the media circus surrounding Marco's family. Her father pulled out at the last minute after getting caught up in a paparazzi scandal and then undergoing a heart operation while her mother was the only family member to attend. Trump has stirred controversy with repeated references to security issues in Britain. In a speech at the National Rifle Association in Texas this month, he talked about knife crime in London, comparing a hospital in the city to a war zone. Knife-related crimes rose by 23% in London last year, and a spate of stabbings and shootings have left more than 50 people dead this year. Back in Singapore, residents in Bukit Panjang and Pongo will soon find it easier to pick up their online shopping, even if they are not home to receive their parcels, as a year-long pilot of a nationwide common parcel locker system begins in these two estates in October. The first of such federated lockers will be located in the convenience accessible areas, such as MRT stations and common collection points within 250 metres of HDB residential blocks. The Infocom Media Development Authority, or IMDA, announced yesterday. Such a system will let users have a convenient pickup point near their homes to collect various parcels, even if they are not around to receive them, and even if these parcels come from different online merchants and vendors. It will provide cost savings and efficiencies to merchants and logistics firms by easing last-mile fulfillment challenges. There will be 23 of such locker sites in Bukit Panjang and 39 in Pongo, which will be run by logistics providers Blue Port and Singpost, respectively. IMDA will oversee this federated lockers network and collection points program, which was first raised in 2016 by DPM Daman Shamugaratnam. The agency has signed memorandums of intent with 15 logistics firms and industry partners to participate in the locker network, including firms such as Singapore Press Holdings or SPH, Parcel Centre and Lazada. 
Parcel Center will partner SPH and tap its newspaper delivery network of more than 3,000 vendors and delivery crew to make deliveries to parcel lockers currently, currently located in 100 condom, condominium precincts. There will also be the option of using any 59 of the any of the 59 SPH bus convenience stores as a drop-off or collection point. Mr. Spencer Tan, Deputy General Manager of SPH bus convenience stores. This collaboration with Parcel Centre is just one of the latest foray to boost our presence in the e-commerce segment, particularly in the last mile delivery. Operating during off-peak hours, off-peak periods, means greater efficiency and easing congestion, especially in high-density areas. Over time, we hope to strengthen our partnership with logistics providers as well as our SPH malls. For our newspaper vendors and delivery agents, this will expand their opportunities and improve their income, added SPH Deputy Chief Executive Anthony Tan. A 28-year-old student who hit and killed a pedestrian was sentenced to three months jail and disqualified from driving for five years yesterday. Galistan Aiden Glynn was driving to his parents' house on August 25th last year despite not having slept for 20 hours. While travelling along Jurong West Street 42 that morning, he lost control of his car. The vehicle swerved, mounted a curb, and hit 41-year-old Serene Eng. Miss Eng, who was flung into the air, died from injuries. Aiden later admitted that he had felt sleepy and tired before the accident. On Monday, footage of the fatal crash was played in court. Miss Eng was seen crossing the road safely and was already on the grass patch beside the curb when the crash occurred. After the crash, Aiden was seen rushing towards Miss Eng. DPP Sandik Kuman Kumaran Sabapati underscored the circumstances of the accident when he asked for three months of jail for Aiden, saying that this was not an ordinary case of negligence, as Miss Eng was out of the way of traffic at the time. In mitigation, it was revealed that Aiden had attended Miss Eng's funeral. Aiden's lawyer, Asiya Ahmad Arif, said that he was remorseful. Aiden also addressed the court directly to apologize to Miss Eng's family. District Judge Hamida Ibrahim acknowledged that while Aiden pleaded guilty to his crime with no delay, his sleep-deprived state was an aggravating factor that could not be discounted. Aiden will begin serving a sentence on Monday. Will begin serving a sentence on Monday. The disqualification period will begin after his release. For causing death by a negligent act, he could have been jailed for up to two years, fined, or both. Electronic road pricing or ERP rates on some roads and expressways will be reduced during the upcoming June school holidays, the Land Transport Authority said. From May 26 to June 24, the rates will go down by $1 per passenger car unit or PCU, LTA said in a statement on Monday. If the current rate at an affected gantry is 50 cents, there will be no charge. ERP rates will return to their preschool holiday amounts from June 25 onwards, LTA said, adding that the rates for all other gantries will remain unchanged. The next quarterly ERP rate review is due to take place in August. A whopping 6,000 cartons of contraband cigarettes were found in a Malaysia-registered prime mover at Tuas checkpoints on Friday. ICA officers directed the prime mover for checks at about 4.15pm after detecting anomalies in the scanned images of the consignment. The officers found contraband cigarettes concealed in the consignment of printer parts and roller scanners. The total duty and GST evaded amounted to about $512,400 
and $37,556 respectively. The driver, a 50-year-old Malaysian man, was handed over to Singapore Customs along with his vehicle for further investigations. ICA said in a statement on yesterday that Singapore's borders are its first line of defence in safeguarding the country's security. It added that the same methods of concealment used by contraband smugglers could be used by terrorists to smuggle arms and explosives to carry out attacks in Singapore. Charity organisations can look forward to greater aid in managing their IT systems with the new non-profit IT cloud service company called iShine Cloud. The company will provide an integrated suite of sector-specific softwares via a cloud-based platform. The observation that many charity organisations have inefficient IT operations or have yet to digitalise their systems prompted a new service. The iShine Cloud Platform will provide more efficient information storage and help to secure their data, which can improve their work productivity and allow them to focus on serving their beneficiaries better. The collaboration between the Singapore Post and National Council of Social Services, or NCSS, was announced at the Singapore Post Golden Jubilee Celebration at JW Marriott Hotel yesterday. Minister for Finance Heng Sui Kiet said, we need the spirit of sharing and partnership between different sectors, pooling resources and expertise to help one another to spark positive change and impact in our community. The platform provided by iShine Cloud will include Microsoft Office 365, shared storage, accounting and human resource systems that users can access from their own devices. Mr. Elvin Yeo, founder of Faith Music Centre, said, Manpower and resources are limited. We have to make sure... Our IT system is efficient and affordable since our core priority is to focus on the beneficiaries. The service will be officially launched and user-ready after further details are made available at the NCSS Summit on July 24th. Singapore Post Chairman Ko Chun Hui said, iShine Cloud is part of iShine, our staff volunteerism initiative that has grown from strength to strength since 2003 raising $7.6 million in donations and, more importantly, giving their time to worthy charities and community causes. Celebrating 50 years as the only legal operator in sports betting and lottery, Mr. Cole said, Singapore Post was set up in 1968 by the government to counter, Ill to counter illegal gambling and to provide a safe and reliable avenue for betting. In our next lap, we will continue to strive ahead with excellence, to do more for a community benefit, as well as to enhance our role as a responsible gaming operator. He added, Singapore Post had contributed to the construction of the National Stadium and organised Concerts with a Heart 2018, a community event celebrating the talents of the special needs communities at our Tampanese Hub. The concert performers were from social service organisations like Minds and Very Special Art Singapore, who showcased their talents again at the 50th anniversary dinner. A dispute after an accident landed a 50-year-old man in jail when a small bag of powder containing methamphetamine fell out of his pocket during the argument. While on bail, Zokairi Amran sank further into crime by working for an unlicensed moneylender to pay the rent on the car he used as a grab driver. Yesterday, he was sentenced to 22 months jail for six charges, including drug and money lending related harassment offences. He was also fined $2,000 and disqualified from driving for a year. Another seven charges of drug, harassment and road-related offences were taken into consideration. 
Nicole heard that on October 9, 2017, Zokairi got into a verbal dispute with one Mr. Pasla Muhammad Amir Ali. As his car was parked in front of Mr. Zokairi's in Lorong 8 Geylang and blocked part of the alley the cars were in. In attempting to leave the place, he collided with Mr. Pasla's car. Court documents did not say what happened next, but Zokairi was arrested for dangerous driving. A subsequent search of the vicinity turned up a packet of powdery substance, later determined to be methamphetamine. It had fallen out of his pocket during the argument. His urine samples also tested for the substance. He admitted that he had consumed Sejun, a street name for methamphetamine, that same morning. He did so by using an, impro an improvised smoking utensil. He added that he had been regularly consuming this since March 2017 to remain alert when he was driving. While on bail for his driving and drug offences, he worked as a grab driver but struggled to pay the rent for the car. He sought to borrow money online and was contacted by a loan shark who offered him a job splashing paint, writing harassment words, pouring kerosene and placing bicycle locks on flats at a rate of $150 per unit. He took the job. On November 20th and 21st last year, he was provided with locations and drove there to carry out the act, which he filmed for the loan shark. The victims noticed a strong smell of kerosene and reported the incident to the police. He was arrested the next day and admitted to being behind the incident. Yesterday, he was also sentenced for an unrelated road offence that took place in February last year. He was driving in a taxi when he failed to stop in time for a red light and collided into the rear of a motorcycle. The motorcyclist suffered a swollen left knee and abrasions to his palm. In sentencing him, District Judge Marvin Bay said, The use of kerosene is plainly an aggravating factor. A stray spark or lit match could have caused extensive damage to property and potentially harmed occupants of the unit and possibly their hapless neighbours. Although harassment on behalf of an unlicensed moneylender calls for an above, for a minimum of three strokes per charge, so Kyrie is above 50 and will not be caned. He was given an additional 12 weeks jail in lieu of caning. He could have received up to five years in jail and $50,000 fines. $50,000 in fines for harassment on behalf of an unlicensed moneylender. And that's your news for today. Thank you for listening.